When in Rome, should we do as the Romans do? Not if we want to live for Jesus. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And this episode is going to finally round out the official teaching of my series on Satan. Uh, There's going to be one episode after this, as I will talk about, but as far as the official stuff goes, this is going to be it. This is going to top us off with, now that we know all that we know, how do we now live? So to recap where we've been so far, we have seen that Satan is a spatial creature, meaning he can only be in one place at one time, and he has the exact same powers and limitations of any angelic being. We've discussed how he's an ancient enemy who's had thousands of years to learn how we work. So Satan may not have all these godlike powers that we ascribe to him, but he's a smart cookie and he knows what he's doing with the resources and limitations that he has. We dug deep and saw that he works with rebellious angelic rulers to create a world that caters to every wicked desire we could possibly have, right? Satan's not out there whispering to you individually. He's not creating individual temptations for you. Instead, he, as I said, sets out the buffet, knowing that with enough options, there's something there for every single one of us. Now, as he works with these angelic beings, we saw that their end goal is to delay their defeat. Why do they do what they do? Because they have a goal. They have a desire in mind. And that desire is to stall as long as possible so that they can keep existing in this world before facing the judgment of God. And then last time, we talked about how we engage in spiritual warfare against worldliness, both as individuals and as a church. We dug really deep into things like uh, Ephesians, talking about the armor of God and how, as Christians, we aren't just standing there having a one-on-one battle with an archer, but as a a collective of Christians, we link our shields side-by-side, protecting ourselves and one another as we undergo a barrage of arrows that Satan attacks us with. Uh, And then finally, we talked about how spiritual warfare involves surrendering our lives to Jesus, learning and applying good theology, and sharing the gospel. Because again, everything that Satan undermines ultimately shows us what is truly important in the life of a Christian. And surrendering to Jesus rather than surrendering to worldliness, learning good theology instead of being, you know, formed by the world, and sharing the gospel rather than becoming ineffective so that the gospel doesn't spread as far. These are all things that are important to God and Satan and his angels. And so as Christians, we want to make sure that we are aligning our lives and our desires on those right things. So last episode was kind of a broader overview, ultimately, of what Satan's influence looks like in the world and in our lives, right? So how should we live our lives? We went kind of broad strokes with that. And so as we conclude this series, I want to dig in to some more specific areas that this applies to our lives, right? To make it a bit more practical as we live for Jesus in a world ultimately ruled by Satan and his angels. And so in this episode, we'll talk about living our day-to-day lives with a right understanding of Satan. So understanding how Satan works how and why he does what he does, how do we as individuals 
think about things in the world, and we're going to especially look at a lot of things in the world that are Satan's weapons against us that I'm going to guess a lot of people listening right now, and myself included, easily get swept up in often without realizing it. Then we're going to talk about how do we live alongside others, right? Because there's no cowboy Christians. This isn't a solo exercise. So understanding Satan, what are practical ways we can live alongside others? Uh, We're going to talk about why the gospel matters to all of this. So as we're living our lives, you know, we want to understand that the gospel is immensely valuable for our salvation, but it's also valuable for our sanctification, for our growing in holiness and reducing in our worldly living. And then we're just going to have just some broad practical steps, just some things to chew on and examine as we end this series. And as you go on, ultimately trying to live your life for Jesus, hopefully with a better understanding of who Satan is, who God is, and who you are. So let's get into it. So we want to remember what the core of worldliness is. And worldliness is, the, is that the true danger of worldliness is that it gives us permission and opportunity to pursue our sinful desires. So we talked about how worldliness is Satan's greatest weapon. And so essentially this is what we need to be mindful of, right? Is to think and act like the world, to desire the things that the world promises, especially over the things that God promises. And so again, Satan's not attacking us personally, but he creates a world system that ultimately tries to draw us away from Jesus and towards really anything but the true Jesus. Because Satan doesn't tempt us, he just offers us what we want. He plays on our sinful desires. He knows how people tick. He knows kind of what what this culture that he's crafted, where it it, uh, moves our desires. And he also knows how to create a world system that tells us, hey, you're feeling empty, you're feeling lost, you, you need happiness, you need satisfaction. Well, come check this out. And so uh, we talked about that chart last time about how we have good desires that can be corrupted into worldly ways of accomplishing it, if you will. Uh, The easy example is pornography. You know, the desire for sex and a relationship is good, but rather than doing it on God's timing and God's ways, things like pornography or uh, extramarital relations and things like that say, hey, have it your own way. Do it your way. Get it now when you want it and how you want it. Uh, Then we also talked about, again, how we see all these things in the world. They promise us all these things. And so then we go, and even if they aren't immediately catering to a desire we have, we see we are exposed to worldliness enough that we start desiring the things that the world tells us to desire. So... Again, that was the broad overview. That's that's really where this whole series has gotten us. So now, what can we understand more specifically? And so I want to look at just a few areas where we very specifically see Satan using worldliness as a tool, and especially as a weapon, to blind the world to their need for Jesus, and also to essentially hobble Christians to make us so distracted, so weak, so immature in our faith, that we really don't have much effect for the kingdom of God. So let's talk about 
the worldliness that we ignore. So the, the that's kind of the, the theme of this section is what are the things in the world that we ignore? How do we so easily come under Satan's attacks? How do we keep giving in to worldliness little by little, making small compromises or even big compromises and inevitably find ourselves saying, wow, how did I get here? How am I so entrenched in worldliness and sin? So one way we do that is in finding happiness. And so things here, the things that we're going to discuss are worldly pursuits, worldly desires and temptations that essentially offer us short-term distractions. These may not necessarily be things that we find our identity in or things that we live for, but they are things that offer us something for now. They, they ask us for a small compromise in one area to gain a benefit or a supposed benefit in another. So one of these things are, for example, drugs and alcohol, uh, the ability to just numb your pain, to be distracted, to uh, to party with people and things like that. Uh, you know, drugs and alcohol give us a momentary distraction, despite many of us knowing the long term disaster that it brings to our lives. Um, another thing is just stuff that gives us freedom from our current pain. So this can be drugs and alcohol. This can be watching TV. It can be earning a lot of money. It can be uh, seeking relationships. It can be really anything, right? Any distraction that sets us free from whatever pain we're feeling, whether it's pain from our past, uh, a, a weak or broken relationship, um, you know, social things, work things, just general unhappiness in life. Uh, even actual physical pain, right? Things that, that draw us away from our current physical suffering, whatever offers us that, especially at the expense of holiness is because it's worldliness. The next one is freedom from boredom. You know, sometimes we, we do things just because we're bored. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to read the Bible. We don't want to study. We don't want to meet with people, but man, we're bored. We want to do something. And so we seek every little distraction we can to save us from our boredom. Likewise, we look for a savior to save us from our thoughts. Uh, you know, whether it's again, dwelling on past hurt, whether it's, um, you know, just anxiety that we have or depression that we're experiencing, you know, we want freedom from our thoughts and we will take any substance, any digital distraction, whatever it is, we will, we will feed ourselves, whatever we can, whatever it takes to get freedom from those dark, those painful, those, those thoughts that we don't want. Um, we also just try to find happiness in food, right? The, the pleasure of eating it. Um, the, especially if you live in America, the constant, uh, ability and, and draw towards, you know, massive portions and all the sugar and stuff that we have access to, you know, we know that long-term these things are terrible for us, but right now they feel good right now. They taste good. And, you know, for a lot of people right now, it feeds that, uh, addiction that we have towards consuming. Um, it gives us a feeling of power and control, you know, even not eating food gives us a, a temporary feeling of power over our lives whatever it is, food, when thought of in a worldly sense, right? Not, you know, thinking of food to the glory of God, food can be a worldly distraction 
and therefore a tool of Satan in our lives. Uh, sex and porn, you know, we're, we already talked about that, how sex is a good thing, but pornography gives us a corrupt, hollow, poisonous version of something that God designed for good. Uh, Amazon deliveries, right? Just the ability to buy stuff. You know, we're bored, we're anxious, we're, you know, whatever, uh, you know, we're uh, in pain, we have dark thoughts, and so we distract ourselves by scrolling through Amazon or, you know, whatever, whatever shopping thing, you know, maybe you're scrolling social media and you see an advertisement and you're like, oh, this thing will make me happy. This thing looks so good. This will fill that void that I've been feeling in my heart. And so we spend money and the, the delivery comes and, and we feel good when we spend the money. We feel good when we open the box and we first start using the thing. But a lot of us look around your house. How much stuff have you bought? Or look at your Amazon order history. How much stuff have you bought that at the time you thought was a good purchase? You thought it was going to make you happy. You thought it was going to matter. You thought it was going to change something. But ultimately, it was something done on impulse, something that felt good and right at the time, even though that's something that you now have to pay for, something that you threw money at that you can't get back. Uh, and then in terms of the short-term distractions that offer us happiness, we also see ourselves giving into worldliness with how we handle a lack of happiness. So what happens when we pursue these things that fail us? Or what happens when we say, oh, if I had a relationship, if I had money, if I had health, those things would make me happy. What do we do when we can't have those things, when we are not allowed to have those things? Well, we turn back to distraction, right? We're, we're angry, we're anxious, we're, we're wallowing in self-pity. And so we just turn back and find other things to distract us. And we just create this vicious cycle of constantly trying to fill this hole that we feel in ourselves. Uh, we might seek control. So we can't have the thing that we want. And so we are going to exert control in other areas of our lives. This can be food. This can be uh, controlling our kids and things like that. It can be uh, even, th I mean, honestly, things like gossip, you know, because gossip allows us to control a narrative of other people. It, it allows us to control the thoughts of others by tearing someone else down and therefore controlling how they view us because we are so superior because we're not guilty of that thing that we're gossiping to our friends about. And anger, you know, how many of us, when we don't get what we want, just react in anger and rage and frustration, you know, where does that anger come from? It's because we have desires that are not being met. And so we are angry because we deserve that, right? We deserve that distraction. We deserve that happiness. And when we can't have that happiness that we are so convinced that we deserve, we get angry. And so just look at this stuff. Think about this stuff. All of these things are, are stuff that so many of us are guilty of. Maybe not every single one of them, but many of them, at least one of them, all of us are guilty of. And this isn't even the whole list of ways that we can search for happiness through, you know, these short-term distractions, these little dopamine rushes that we get. But look at all of this. What is the goal of all of this? It's to please ourselves. It's to make us feel better. It's to live for us, 
because that's what matters most in that moment. It doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter how it's going to hurt us later. It doesn't matter how it hurts those around us, whether they know we're doing it or not. That doesn't matter because our greatest person, our greatest God, the person, the thing that we worship most ourselves is being served in that moment. And that is worldly thinking, looking out for number one, being focused on ourselves, feeling that we own our own lives and therefore we are owed everything that we think we deserve. That's an ungodly satanic worldview. And all these things that we struggle with stem from that reality. Now, next, as far as the types of worldliness that we ignore and the things that we allow into our lives, often without seeing it, the next is finding satisfaction. So if the previous one was how we look for those short-term bursts of happiness, this is more what we live for and focus on frequently. So this is the stuff that can dominate hours, weeks, even our entire lives, right? We can, we will craft our lives around these different things as we make it a part of who we are, ultimately believing that either this marks our identity or this marks our, uh, you know, w what we truly need in life for the long term. So the first one is hobbies. You know, again, hobbies are a very good thing. They're a gift from God. But how much of our time and our money and our effort do we devote to it? What gets sacrificed? What gets compromised? What gets set aside for the sake of our hobbies? And when we do those things, when we pursue our hobbies, are we doing it to the glory of God? Or are we doing it to the glory of us? Next is relationships. Again, crafting all of our lives, all of our satisfaction, saying, I cannot possibly be happy unless I have a relationship. And then we pursue these relationships and we say, you know, if this person would just act a certain way, you know, whether it's when you're, you're dating or whatever, whether it's when you're married, whether it's when you're considering divorce, you know, your greatest desire is this person is meant to satisfy me. This person is meant to make me happy. And we get frustrated. We abandon them. We treat them with hostility when they fail to live up to the standards that we've set, because ultimately we use our relationships. Well, I mean, it can be romantic, which it often is our friends, our kids. It can be the same way, right? We, we have, we use people to serve us to say, I am lonely. I have a lack of something. And so if I have this relationship and if in this relationship, this person or these people just act right, if they give me what I need, then finally I can be satisfied. Finally, I can enjoy life. And that's treating people in, in a role that only God is meant to satisfy. Uh, next, you know, we might find satisfaction in being superior to others, and this can be a whole range of things, right? But many of you have probably met that person where they constantly have to tell you how great they are, how bad other people are. They're constantly searching for, uh, you know, the best stuff, the best job, the best money, uh, you know, the the best of everything, you know, they want to show off how superior they are, or they want to tell you how superior they are. And if you don't know that person, you're probably that person, right? Because, but even those of us who aren't as, as outspoken about it, 
many of us like that feeling of superiority. We like being able to look down on others to make ourselves feel better because we are lacking a thing. And so to, to tear others down allows us to build ourselves up even more because again, we're serving ourselves. And so many of us easily make a lifestyle out of this that we constantly live with this idea that, Oh, I am better than that political group. I am better than that person or those people over there. And so much of our lives and our focus, our online interactions, the things that we consume, the things that we say to other people, so much of them are built around our need to be better than others because we are convinced that if we can be better, if we can reach this certain level of superiority over others, then maybe just maybe we can finally feel good. And for a moment we might, but if you've ever been this kind of person, you know, that doesn't last. And so you have to go tearing down more people to keep building yourself up. And this can come through different things, your intelligence, your status, uh, how you look, the lifestyle you lead, uh, you know, uh, being in you know more conservative circles, uh, it's very easy as a homeschool parent to feel superior to those those you know public school parents and things like that. Um, the looks thing, I don't know what that's like. I I assume people can feel superior for their looks, uh, your status, whether socially or economically, and just your intelligence. You know the things that you know and that you want to to batter people over the head with because you're desire isn't to to build people up but to let them know how far below you they are uh, now we can find satisfaction in entertainment now this is you know slightly different than just sitting down and you know watching a show when you're bored you know for that temporary happiness uh, but ultimately there are many people who just live for entertainment they live for that distraction you know those things that we talked about become a lifestyle for them and so they just try to find whatever satisfaction, whatever self-worth they can in just constantly being entertained and having, you know, music or movies or TV or whatever it is, just having stuff constantly coming at them to entertain them because they don't want to be left with their own thoughts. They don't want to be left with the reality that they are unhappy. They don't know what to do. They don't know who they are. And so entertainment lets them turn that off. Uh, next, you can find satisfaction in your accomplishments and just keep living for the past or living for what you're doing now or living for, you know, boy, one day when my ship comes in kind of thing. And and people can just mold their lives around, you know, all their trophies and check marks that they've gotten. Uh, you can live for freedom from long term suffering. Uh, you know, if you're someone who, uh, you know, lives in constant physical pain or has just had a lifetime of uh, trauma or emotional pain, uh, you can do everything in your life to fit around the need to have freedom from that long-term suffering. And so again, just like entertainment, it goes from uh, temporary distraction to being a lifestyle of seeking distraction, of seeking freedom from long-term suffering. Again, all at the expense of compromising so many other areas of our lives. You can live for material goods. You know, you can be the guy in the Bible who just built up his bigger barns and was convinced that his security, his happiness, his satisfaction would be found in stuff. So again, not an exhaustive list, but you know what I mean? 
You know, these are things that we, that form our lifestyles that we are all about, you know, so many, so much of our time, so much of our money, so much of our thought life gets invested into so many of these things. But again, where does this all come from? It comes from a world controlled by Satan that says we need to find our satisfaction, right? We need to, to put everything in to, to our hobbies, into our relationships. Uh, you know, we need to be entertained. You know, we need to be distracted. You know, we work so hard and now we need to come home and just sit and veg, or we need to, uh, you know, keep pursuing, uh, activities and stuff outside of, of work. Uh, whether that's our own accomplishments, whether it is, uh, you know, f- living through our kids and getting them on the winning, you know, baseball team or, or soccer team or whatever, you know, it's it's this constant need to say I am unhappy, and looking for all these things and spending our lives pursuing these things, hoping, trusting that when they promise us that they can satisfy us, that one day they will come through and won't fail us even though over time, inevitably, they always fail us. So now the last bit of worldliness that I want to look at is the worldliness where we find our identity. Uh, You know, again, one of Satan's greatest things is for us to find our identity in everything else except for Jesus Christ. So, for example, one way we find our identity is in politics. Uh, you know, again, I assume that most people who who watch this channel are of a more conservative, maybe right wing uh, mindset. And I know a lot of people in my life who they go to church and all that, but their church is blended with their politics, and they believe that a man run government system is going to set us free, and that it is what we need sometimes more than we need the gospel. Now, no one would ever say that, of course, but again, with where our energy goes, with where our time goes, with the things that we place our hope in, it really reveals where our identity is. Another place we find our identity is in our social media presence. Uh, You know, if you are someone who spends a lot of time on social media, really examine and ask, is the life that you are living online true? Or is it crafted? Is it manufactured? Do you need people to see you in a certain way? Because a lot of people who live for social media live for this life that they don't really have, but that they want to display for the world to see. They want to let people know how good they are, how pure they are, how Christian they are. But it's not real, or at least not even close to the degree that a lot of people will play will portray it. But again, that's their identity. Their identity isn't in Jesus. Their identity is in how others perceive them. They don't let God tell them who they are. They let other people's approval tell them who they are. If other people are giving them the likes, they are successful. If people are not responding, then they have done something wrong. They have failed in their life and they need to rally and get back there and recreate another version of their identity that people are willing to respond to. But notice the focus is on us. It's on how we feel and it's how others feel about us. Very little of that has anything to do with being a child of God. 
we can find our identity in family. Once again, a very, very good gift from God that we can twist and corrupt for our own ends. You know, whether that is, if I could get married, then I would be happy. And then we get married and all, everything about us, everything that we think about and dwell on is focused on our spouse. Or we say, you know, oh, I need to have kids. And so then when we finally have those kids, then we find our whole identity in being a mom or a dad. And that's everything that we are. And again, it is nowhere near wrong to take your your marriage or your uh, role as a parent seriously. Those are good things that can glorify God. But when all of our identity is found in, you know, having a perfect husband or wife or having kids who behave a certain way and act a certain way, then what happens when those things fail us? What happens when they don't do what we want, when they, when they change or when tragedy strikes? When everything about who we are is wrapped up in our families rather than to the glory of God, we serve our families as we're able to then we are thinking like the rest of the world who finds who they are in their family and their kids or their spouse. Next, we can find our identity in our physical or mental attributes. Uh, so that can be going to the gym, not for sake of being healthy or training or uh, because it's just a, a nice hobby that you do in good measure, but doing it because you have to look a certain way. You have an ideal. You need people to see you a certain way. Why? Because again, that's your identity. You are good or bad based on how people view your physical attributes. And that can be, again, exercise, diet, uh, you know, makeup and beauty, whether you're balding, whatever it is. When who we are and, and our personal value is defined by how people view our, our physical nature rather than, you know, wanting to care for our bodies to the glory of God, that shows us where I, our identity truly lies. And mental attributes can be the exact same thing, you know, having to uh, tell people how smart we are, having to know all the facts, having to be that person who, you know, shoves their glasses up their nose and says, you know, actually, and even people within Christianity can do this. You know, how many people have you met who really put you off of wanting to study the Bible because they know theology, but it's not a theology studied out of a love for God, but instead out of a need to be smart, out of a need to prove themselves or out of a need to justify the things they want to do or believe. We can find our whole identity in how people think of us physically, but also how people think of us mentally or intellectually. You know, the things we know, the, the things about our personality, you know, whether people find us funny or people find us really smart or find us uh, witty or interesting or compassionate. When so much of our lives get wrapped up in crafting this persona so that people can view us a certain way, we're glorifying ourselves and not our God. People can also find their identity in their sexuality. That can be the... LGBTQ issues where people just are so this way. And so, so much of what they say and do is based on the fact that, oh, well, that's just how I am. But it can also be just how good someone is in bed or how attractive their spouse is. You know, this constant need for people to view us based on our sexual preferences, our sexual uh, prowess is a completely worldly idea 
that says that you are not a a true real person outside of this one narrow confine that we that we shove ourselves into and another part of that of course is especially with the lgbtq issues is that when that becomes a person's identity what do they do when they start to wonder if maybe it's not god's will and desire for people it's not just changing their mind on a belief they had it's changing their mind on the core essence of who they truly are which is one of the dangers of how america views sexuality today now likewise religious beliefs can be a core of who we are and that's a hard one to talk about because this whole channel right this whole ministry is built on what we believe about god and how it affects our lives but a lot of people become so invested in their religious beliefs that they can't change them you know growing up i had very firm beliefs on things like bible translations and denominations and who was or wasn't worthy of salvation and how you could tell if somebody was saved uh just just all kinds of stuff that I was just very, you know, dogmatic, my way or the highway about. And because of that, I would grow angry. I would grow uncomfortable at the very least when people would challenge that belief because they weren't just challenging a belief I had. They were challenging a core of who I was. And if I wasn't all these, these hard nosed things, then what was I? And even for Christians, right, that, that can be the exact same issue is that we, we learn about things, not because we want to know what God desires, but we study, we learn, we grow so that we can, we can dig in deeper and be completely unmoved from this thing that we want to believe, even if we might one day realize that it's not the will of God, but we've, we've spent so much time focused on it that we can't possibly change because that would mean compromising who we truly are. And so our goal is not truth with religious beliefs. Our goal is who we are as defined by our beliefs that are religion adjacent. Now, just as we can focus on our physical or mental attributes, right? The good things about us, a lot of times, and especially today, we can find our identity in our physical or mental health problems. Uh, you know, physical ones, you know, people, they just can't because they're, they're so overcome with these physical disabilities or limitations that they have, but especially mentally, you know, so many people define themselves by their mental health issues, whether it's something light, like, oh, I just had these, this quirk where, uh, you know, I just say what I mean and I, I don't care what other people think, or people can define themselves by their anxiety, their depression, all these labels that, uh, their doctors have either given them or that they've gone to WebMD and decided that, yes, this is my mental health issue. And so people craft their entire lives and, and the essence of who they truly are is found in these mental health issues. And again, that's not ignoring the fact that people do experience anxiety, do experience depression and things like that. But the issue comes in when you challenge where those problems are coming from, because people are so content and even desirous to be a victim of these things that when you start to maybe point out that, 
you know, just maybe, you know, this anxiety you feel is because of where you're placing your affections, where you're placing your hopes. Same with depression, you know, because what is depression? It's a feeling of hopelessness. It's a, a lack of energy. It's feeling like even life isn't worth it. And what what really can be the root of that? And And I've talked about this, you know, many times throughout this ministry. Depression often comes because we're placing our hopes in things that are failing us. We are finding our identity in things that that don't give us that satisfaction that we're hoping for. You know, those things that used to distract us so easily suddenly no longer do. And so because we've placed all our hope in these temporary and perfect things, when they fail us, when we can't place hope in something, we are hopeless. We experience things like depression. But people don't like that because that means that who they are, how they've defined themselves, everything that they've, they've believed about themselves is suddenly in jeopardy. And without their physical problems being limitations and defining them, without their mental health problems defining them and being maybe even an excuse or, or giving them value, letting them feel unique, if they don't have those things, what else do they have? It challenges, it threatens to take away their identity if they can't define everything about themselves through this lens of physical or mental health. Similarly, socioeconomic status, right? I can't because I'm poor, and so so much of our time is focused on, on being poor and dreaming of one day striking it big or hating those who, who are, are wealthier than us or we feel that people owe us something. Likewise, people can define themselves more easily and right and much more uh, common, I think, is when they do well. You know, when they are successful, then they say, I have great value because my bank account looks like this, because I can buy all this stuff. Uh, we can find it in social acceptance. So how people view us defines our identity. This can be social media. This can be at work, right? How, how often... Do we or have we seen other people change who they are, compromise their beliefs, buy things they would never buy, go places and do things they never would have done simply because they need the group or an individual to accept them, to approve of them? Why? Because they find their identity in the thoughts and beliefs and the, the views of those people. And people can find it in their nationality or ethnicity. Uh, I don't know if it uh, shows up on camera, but I've got Irish in me. You know, I've got red speckles throughout my beard and stuff. And I, I am an angry person. You know, and anger is something that I repent of probably more than any other sin in my life. And, you know, keeping it kind of lighthearted here. But there are people who would say or I could even say, well, you know, I'm just I'm Irish. You know, I just I've got that anger in me. But I, I can't define myself on my ancestors. I can't define myself on even where I live. You know, Christian nationalism is something I've written about and maybe done a podcast on. I'm not sure. I'll link it in the show notes, whatever I have on it. Uh, but this idea that America needs to be a Christian nation. And so we, we define ourselves as Christians through an American lens and we, we, try to sanctify all these things that a particular 
political party believes, right? Because we say that we are Americans and to be a good Christian is to be a good American. And if you're a good American, you're a good Christian, or you're at the very least really close to being a Christian versus those people who don't. They hate America and therefore they hate God, right? And so we find our identity in in these these worldly boundaries, of, of our race, our ethnicity, or just where we live, you know, whether it's the country, whether it's the state, all of this is just such a, a, a Satan fueled lie that we all believe in one way or another. Our identity is so critical to who we are because it lets us know who we are. It dictates what we do, what our desires are, the things that we can safely ignore, the things that we know that we should pursue. Our identity is really all we have. Even those who are 100% sold out for God, they have their identity in something, right? Something or someone defines their identity because we, we all do that. We all need that. That's, I think, how God designed us is to to find ourselves, to define ourselves by something. But you look at these things. You look at your own social media, your own bookshelf, your own uh, YouTube viewing history, your own browsing history, the apps that you have installed on your phone, the things that you spend money on, the things that you focus on, the dreams that you have, the, the like, not sleeping dreams, your future dreams. You think of all this stuff, you know, you, you examine all this stuff and really, truly ask yourself, where are you finding your identity? What is most important to you? Or maybe another way of identifying your identity is to say, what could I lose? What could go catastrophically wrong, but it would not change where I find my value and what I place my hope in? What happens if your political party fails or loses? What happens if no one on social media cares about you anymore? What happens when your family fails or you just don't get the family at all that you were hoping for? What happens when people don't notice your physical or mental attributes or those things start to fail you? What happens when you realize that those things don't define you? Do you have anything left to your identity without your physical or mental limitations or struggles? You know, what happens when your understanding of sexuality is challenged? Or what happens when you realize that no one really cares how good you are in bed or how many people you've had sex with and aren't impressed by that thing? What happens when your religious beliefs are challenged? Not does God exist, but does your understanding of this particular topic, this particular belief, this particular denomination... What happens when those understandings are challenged? Are you excited to better understand God or are you terrified because everything that you've put your, your focus on that you've allowed to define you, you've realized has been more about you and what you want to believe than what God has revealed is true. And then, you know, your, your level of poverty or lack of it, um, how much people like you, your, where you come from or where you live, what happens when you don't have those things, when you can't let those things define you or excuse what you do, what happens when those things no longer satisfy you and make you happy? If there is something on this list or even something else in your life, 
if there is something that that if you lost it, you would not know who you are anymore, and it's not Jesus Christ, really examine if you're finding your identity in something else. Because if you are, you are playing right into Satan's trap. Because that is what he wants. He wants us distracted temporarily. He wants us finding satisfaction outside of Jesus. And he really wants us to find our identity in something other than our Savior. Because how we define ourselves determines what we live for. So now I want to continue on. And I want us to look at the ways that worldliness shapes us. So we looked at a lot of very specific things in our lives that some of us are really sold out to and some things that none of us struggle with at all. You know, maybe you're someone who doesn't define themselves by their looks. Maybe you're someone who doesn't look to their phone or social media for temporary distraction or for long-term satisfaction. But where do these influences come from? Because we don't just wake up one day and say, ah, I'm going to have these struggles in my life, or we're not born necessarily with a proclivity towards, boy, I'm really going to be, you know, I'm going to use food as my means of finding happiness in life, or I'm going to define myself by my mental health struggles. So where do these things come from? You know, what tells us that these things will make us happy? You know, if, if worldliness is ultimately Satan, the deceiver's greatest deception in the world, how does he deceive us? What avenues does he use? Because he's clearly not attacking us one-on-one, right? We, we just talked about how it's, it's utterly impossible for him to just every moment of every day whispering directly to us from wherever he's at. So if, his, if he does not have God-like, you know, being everywhere at once and have all this power, if he's not like God, And if he's not on an individual campaign, then that must mean that he is going, he is using basically bigger platforms, right? Bigger avenues to output all these temptations to us, right? To, to spread it on a massive scale instead of individually. So how is he doing this thing? What are the things in our lives that start dictating what we desire, what we view as good? Where do we start believing these promises and hope that they won't be empty, even though they always are? And so just a kind of a quick list of the different things that influence or affect where we learn about this, this worldliness, right? How, how does, how are we shaped to desire some things and not desire others? Well, one way is through our social groups. So it can be our upbringing. So the family that we're born into, the siblings that we have, or, you know, how our parents raise us. Uh, you know, sometimes you can have things growing up that your parents call very good that as you get older, you reject because you, you, you learn to resent those things. Similarly, things that your parents raised you with, you can often still hold on to. So, you know, the proverb about train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he won't depart from it. That's not just a promise about stick your kid in church and he'll just be a Christian and be safe forever. But instead, as parents, we shape our kids' worldview. And as kids, if we look back, our worldviews are shaped by our parents. You know, if we had good parents or bad parents or absentee parents, that influences a lot of our parenting styles, our traditions. Uh, but 
beyond just our upbringing and our parents, our friends likewise have a big effect on what we call good. The more we trust a person, you know, if you have a best friend versus an acquaintance, they have a lot more sway on the things that you desire, on what you set out to do, on the things that you will not take part in, on the things that you will take part in. Uh, and online communities, similarly, you know, in the world we live in, there's just a lot of groups out there, you know, Facebook groups and stuff like that, where we, we are constantly seeing, Hey, this is good. This is bad. And if we want to feel included in these communities, if we want to find our identity and what this community thinks is good, we are much more likely to, to start crafting our beliefs to start accepting things as good and start rejecting other things as bad based on what our communities or our friends or our upbringing teaches us and tells us is good. Likewise, politics, right? If you are a right-wing conservative Christian, you are almost guaranteed to have a very similar set of beliefs to a lot of others. If you are a left-wing liberal Democrat, you're likewise going to have a lot of similar beliefs as other people in your groups. Now we should think that that's weird. That's, you know, millions of different people can all have the same beliefs, except it's not very weird when we realize that we allow politics and our political parties and our politicians to dictate what is or isn't good or right. You know, just even today, you've got political parties who are, you know, battering back and forth saying, hey, people are responding to this. People are not responding to this, where they're realizing that younger generations aren't responding to certain policies or certain stances. And people are starting to soften or modify their beliefs on these things because it's not about what's right. It's about what's popular and what gives us the most power. But as Christians, if we are allowing other people to dictate what is good and right and how we define certain things and how we determine certain what is right and wrong, we're letting it shape us in the wrong way. News is the same way. You know, the news doesn't exist to give you the news. The news exists to entertain you. That's why you're going to see a lot of very similar things from news sources that lean one way politically versus another news source that leans another way politically, because their job isn't to tell you the truth. Their job is to keep you watching or to keep you listening. And so they will say the things that you want to hear or say the things that they know will keep you on the hook. That's why a lot of the news that you hear today isn't about general things without political agenda or without political leanings. It's all about the great things that this politician from this party did and all the evil things that these people from this other party are doing. And so they craft a narrative to entertain you to say, here are the heroes and here are the villains, knowing that we will allow them to shape our beliefs, what we call good and bad, because that's what they do. And advertising is a similar thing. You know, every advertisement ultimately has one goal to either meet, tell you how this product is going to meet one of your needs, or it's going to create a need you never knew you had and tell you how it's going to fill it, or it's going to promise you a lifestyle that you need. And so advertising ultimately says, Hey, what do you think you need 
that we can fill, or we're going to show you something you didn't even know you needed that now you realize you can't live without because of how it's been packaged to you. Now, on the other side, we've got stuff like movies, TVs, and books. Uh, you know, these things that can define generations, how we view love, romance, war, politics, social standing, uh, groups, uh, the differences between genders or races, all kinds of stuff, right? Movies, TV, and books shape our worldview on those things. And over time, the things that uh, especially younger generations start seeing become normalized and glamorized in movies, TVs, and books, over time, those become an accepted part of their life. And as they grow up, they're going to form the world in a way that matches what they've always understood about the world. Uh, YouTube and social media, similar thing. The main difference is that, you know, a movie and a TV show, it's got a big budget. It's got to go through a lot of edits, screenings, you know, audience uh, reactions and things like that. Books likewise take months, years for someone to write. They've got to really focus and go through all this effort and all this, you know, consuming time. But YouTube, you can turn on your camera and make something in five minutes. Social media, you can just type out a quick thing while you're on the toilet. You know, in, in YouTube and social media, it's not about who's created the best product, but who can get your attention the most. And so on social media, the greatest minds and the most depraved minds have equal voice, equal volume, equal power, which on one hand is good because it allows us to kind of select who we want to listen to. But at the same time, we're just constantly bombarded with everyone who has equal power saying stuff. And we then have to do the work of either very carefully and very meticulously sorting through everything, checking references, thinking on things, thinking about the ramifications of what's being said, or we just accept whatever catches our attention the most. And then that shapes what we believe is true. You know, I cite as a really good example, the fact that so many people will see an, a, uh, an article or a YouTube video linked on you on social media and without watching, without reading, people will immediately be reacting because that's what YouTube and social media has conditioned us to do is to just be reactive to our understandings of a thing rather than digging deep into understanding what's true and what's false. Uh, education, you know, whether it's kindergarten, whether it's college, teachers and the whole education system, whether it's public education, private, homeschool, this has a huge influence because it is very similarly to our upbringing, right? Teachers are people that we give great authority of truth in our lives. Someone that we trust to tell us what's right and what's wrong, what's real and what's not. We are going to allow them to form our lives or our kids' lives, and that is going to have a massive long-term impact on what we think is good and right, because we're going to go through school, go through college saying, hey, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And then we get out into the world, and what do we do? When the world's not how we were told it ought to be, we either get shaped by something else, or we fight to make all these things that we were told a reality. And that can be very good, but that can also be very dangerous. And that's why we got to be careful about 
what we are exposing our kids to. And even as adults, as we are sitting under different teachers, careful about what we expose ourselves to, because when we give someone that power, when we give someone that authority over us, we give them the power to shape our worldview and they can shape it towards godliness or they can shape it towards worldliness. And we have to desire to be shaped by godliness so that we can better choose what teachers we give that power to. Now, tradition and culture, uh, you know, what we do here in America is very different from what they do in Taiwan. And that's ultimately because we have very different traditions that have a long history. We live in different cultures that value certain things, do certain things that others don't. And so these are things that just shape us and that doesn't make them good or bad. That just makes them a reality that we have to be careful of when we say, well, here's what I've always done. Here's what I grew up with. So this must be right. Is it right? Or is it just what we are accustomed to? And so we have a bias towards it saying, well, because it's what I've always experienced, clearly this is what everyone else needs to experience as well. Um, and then music, you know, uh, I'll tell on myself a little bit here. Um, I grew up ever since like, fifth grade listening to rap music. And so if you know anything about rap music, it glorifies drugs and alcohol and partying and violence and sexualizing women and the music videos that, you know, those used to be a thing. I don't, I don't know if people remember music videos anymore, but uh, MTV and BET, that's what was glorified in the videos too. And so because of music, I grew up thinking that a lot of these things were just kind of normal. And that even though I didn't experience it in my own upbringing, I just assumed that the rest of the world was like this. And so we, you know, drugs and alcohol hold a certain freedom and a certain uh, social acceptance and that, you know, women are to be thought of this certain way that's horrible. But, you know, that's the power that music has over us is it's catchy. We can listen to it over and over again. You know, very few people when they're driving to the store are just kind of sitting there in traffic and thinking, hey, I need to crank up some to kill a mockingbird. You know, no one's no one's thinking that way. You know, some people like audiobooks, but I mean, most people really, when you've got that time, when you've got the lull in the day, when you're standing in line, what comes into your mind? A song. Right? Because music has such a powerful influence on us in that way. Now, this isn't everything that shapes us. Again, I'm not getting super exhaustive in this video, but these are a lot of the core things that shape us. Now, if I had to guess, if I had to say, you know, there's just a handful of these that are the biggest influences, the ones that I would pick would be the news, advertising, movie, TVs, and books, and education. And I say that because things like YouTube and social media, our upbringing, the things that our friends or online communities say are good, the music that we listen to, even our cultures and, and traditions, politics, these things are, in a way, reactions to what is seen on the news and advertising and in our entertainment and in our education. Now, I'm not making this a huge deal, but just want to point out that all these things don't exist in isolation. They're all linked. They all feed off one another again, because what is Satan's greatest weapon against us? It's worldliness. And when he can 
not just go out and, and create individual temptations custom made for each of us, but instead, if he can influence the news, if he can create advertisements that appeal to us, if he can get into our entertainment m- mediums, and if he can get into the education, everything else is going to spawn out of those things. Now, if I had to cut it down to three, maybe even the news could be cut down just because the news is essentially advertising at this point anyway. But, but really pause and think about this though. Where do all your sinful desires come from? Your own heart. We saw that in James, but where do these temptations come from? You know, why do you want the sinful things that you want? Why do you behave the sinful way that you behave? Ultimately, it's because of your upbringing or your friends, or the things that you watch, the things that you consume. And if those things were tainted by worldliness, is it any surprise that what you think is good or desirable or or is going to bring you happiness in that moment, even getting angry, even yelling, even hurting someone, is it any surprise that you trust that thing to, to bring you happiness and satisfaction when that's what you've grown up with? And again, no one is a victim. We are all responsible for our sins. But understand, these things aren't random. These things aren't impossible to track down. Any sin that we desire, any sin that we struggle with, if we want to find the root of it, we can. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really hard. But if we are willing to be self-reflective enough to stop hiding behind excuses, behind comfort levels... If we are willing to not distract ourselves, but instead to do the hard work sometimes, we can start seeing how all these little things, all these little worldly influences we have, whether the the specific ones we've talked about or even the bigger things that we see here, we can start seeing how ingrained they are in our lives, how much like a cancer they've, they've sent out tendrils and taken deep root in our vital systems and influence so much of what we do. And so if we want to live in Satan's world and live to the glory of God, we have to realize that when we allow these things to influence us or, or the, the wrong kinds of these things to influence us, we are giving great opportunities for sin to sit and dwell and then grow in our hearts and thinking of these things really matters because of that. So all that being said, how do we live day to day? Again, we've seen the specific ways that, you know, we can be influenced. We can be drawn away from Jesus. So how do we live day to day? What, what things should we keep in mind as we're just going about this life? Well, the first thing is to remember that worldliness will affect everything about our lives. Remember that if Satan can distract us with worldly pursuits and distractions, then we're going to be less effective for Jesus. And I don't want to do the whole, oh, the terrorists win thing, but the more we give into worldliness, the more we are doing precisely what Satan wants. It's not just, oh, I'm not living for Jesus like I should. It's ultimately, I'm living for Satan not Jesus. I'm allowing Satan to have influence in my life. I'm allowing Satan to craft my worldview, to craft my desires, how I spend my time and my focus and find my identity. We're allowing Satan to do it. 
instead of our Savior. And then we need to stop avoiding mines and recognize how we end up in a minefield. So when I talk to people who they, they're struggling with the sin and they say, oh, you know, I just, I found myself just wanting this thing and I don't even know where it came from. For a lot of people, temptation is like being in the middle of a minefield and you're trying so carefully not to step on a mine and, and trigger sin. But very few people stop and say, how did I get into the middle of a minefield in the first place? So oftentimes, I, when I, whenever I talk to people about this, it's either a desire for a substance or a desire for something sexual. And so what I try to talk to them about and help them to see is that you didn't just end up tempted randomly and by accident. You wandered into the middle of a minefield. You allowed yourself to be influenced by worldliness. You kept consuming more of what Satan creates and not what God desires. And at the time, you didn't realize it. You didn't realize you were maybe walking into a minefield because that's often what worldliness does. You know, it's, it's secretive. It's sneaky. It's insidious like that. But at a certain point, we realize, oh man, one wrong step and I'm going to be blown up by sin. So instead of living every moment of your day reacting to your temptation, instead ask yourself, where did this temptation come from? What have I been doing? What have I been desiring, whether for the past day or week or years of my life? What things are there that have led me to this point that I am trusting that this will make me happy and this will satisfy me. Now, sometimes there's just annoyingly enough, these kind of residual things that we just struggle with. Even if we are so careful, we've got a sin nature, right? That dead man that's still rotting away and that is at war with the Holy Spirit within us. So sometimes that's it. But a lot of times, again, if we are willing to be honest, and this is so so critical for this discussion. We have to be willing to be honest, to look at the ugliness within us, to not make excuses, to, to ultimately realize that we are not the hero in our story. We are the villain in our story. When we're willing to do that, it's much easier to identify not just what our individual temptations are, but the things that we do to contribute to feeding those temptations, to making them reach a point where they seem to promise us life, happiness, satisfaction, even though we know they won't. So that is how we as individuals can live, right? Just something to keep in the back of our minds to help us analyze the world as we're living day to day. But how do we live alongside others as well? Because as I said at the beginning, there's no such thing as a cowboy Christian. We are not in this alone. We are in this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we need to remember that worldliness will affect everything about our lives together. You read the book of James and a lot of it is how worldliness compromises our relationships with other believers, that we let our own desires come before the desires of God and how we treat other people. We also want to remember that if Satan can divide or distract us through worldliness, then the church will be less effective for Jesus Christ. So not just individuals, but then we just leave everything up to the pastor to deal with. No, we need to all be in this together. We need to all be serving in the capacity and in the roles that God has called us to. 
And if an individual stumbles and falls, other believers can rally around them to pick them up. But if we as a church are not pursuing holiness, if we as a church are allowing worldliness to seep in and dictate what we do and believe or don't do and refuse to believe, then that entire church is going to fail. And Satan will have accomplished precisely what he wants, and that is weakening the effect of the gospel in the world and in the lives of believers. And finally, we want to pay attention to the Bible's commands about how we live alongside one another. I'm not going to get into it in this episode, but in as you're reading, especially things in the New Testament letters from people like Paul and Peter, a lot of it is about not just, hey, you individual go do this, but you as a church understand this. You as a group, as a collective, do this, understand this. And so when we understand the Bible's commands aren't just for us as individuals and how we be better people, but how we live that out alongside other Christians, we're going to be much more effective for Jesus because we are going to be stronger together, not just individually. So now I want to talk about why the gospel matters to this discussion. You know, we know that the gospel matters for salvation, but oftentimes we don't think about what sin is, who we are, why we need Jesus. We often don't think about that beyond our moment of salvation, but the gospel is effective through every area of our life because yes, Jesus, you know, Jesus no longer needs to pay the penalty for our sins, but the gospel also tells us because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, we can now live a certain way. We can now do things that we couldn't before, like living for God, loving God. And so if the gospel is all about who we are and who Jesus is and how we need him for salvation, but also just for, for living, right? For day-to-day living as his followers, then why does the gospel matter as we are living for Jesus in Satan's world? Well, to start with, we need to understand that temptation focuses us on ourselves, Again, temptation is often taking something that God has designed as good and saying, no, instead of doing it God's way, waiting for God's timing, you can have it now. You can have it in a way that you want instead of having it in the way that God wants it for you. And so temptation is ultimately tells us, hey, you need to live for yourself. You need to make yourself happy. You deserve this. Temptation is a purely selfish endeavor. Sin is ultimately a desire to do what we believe will make us happiest in that moment. Even if we know at the end of the day, even five minutes later, we're going to have regrets. We're going to hate ourselves. In that moment, we believe that sin is what we need most because we believe that we cannot be happy in that moment without it. Now, to contrast that, we want to remember that the gospel calls for us to live for someone else. If temptation is all about live for us, we remember that the gospel calls for us to live for Jesus. So, two passages worth considering for this. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's not I who lives, but Christ in me. 
I don't want to go super old school and do the what would Jesus do nonsense, but it's a good question. When temptation comes, who are we living for? Who are we honoring? Who are we glorifying with the decision that we're going to make? Can we truly give in to sin to the glory of God? Never. In that understanding, right, that, that sharp divide can help us realize that sin isn't just this little help, you know, lightweight, whatever thing. Sin is the opposite of God every single time. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, this is talking about physical and sexual sin against the body, but the, the core idea is still there, right? That same thing we saw in Galatians 2.20. We are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to God. Jesus Christ paid for us. And so the life we live now is not to be lived for us. It's to be lived for the one we belong to. If we belong to Jesus, then as we're living for him in this world, we want our desires, our responses to sin, our understanding of temptation to be reflective of someone who belongs to Jesus and doesn't think they belong to themselves. Now, next, we want to remember that sin is a choice for Christians and not an obligation. Before Jesus, we couldn't help but sin. But look at what Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 18 tell us about how we as Christians can respond to sin now. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be master over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. And again, that's, that's core there. Sin will not be master over you. We're going to see that when we let sin control what we do, when we let temptation dictate our actions, we are not letting Jesus be master. We're letting sin be master over us. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, look at that contrast. So many people without Jesus think, oh, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be free. We're not free. We always have a master. Either our master is sin that leads us to death or Jesus that leads us to life and righteousness. Now, without Jesus, we only had the option to surrender to one master. All we could do was sin. That's why even our good deeds don't mean anything to God. Because even the best things we do are in one way or another done for our own glory, for our own satisfaction. But... Having been set free from sin, 
we now choose. Will I surrender to sin or will I surrender to Jesus? And that is a choice that Christians have. No matter how strong the temptation, no matter what we believe about our upbringing, about our mental health, about any of that stuff, God is clear. We always have a choice about sin. It just depends on who we think we belong to. Do we think we belong to ourselves and therefore give ourselves to sin? Or do we know that we belong to Jesus and therefore we surrender to him and let him be master of us? And now what we're ultimately talking about here is misplaced affections, not behavior modification. So often when we're thinking about living in this life, we think that we just have to act a certain way and then we're good. We're fine. But not sinning isn't just a matter of not doing the sin. It's also about why we desire that sin in the first place. Again, we're not going to be sin free on this side of eternity, but what we can do is do the hard and painful and even embarrassing work of examining where does that sin desire come from so that I can know what I'm believing? Because we can choose not to sin all the time. But if we're not doing it for the glory of God, if we're just doing it because we want to prove ourselves, because we don't want to be embarrassed, because we're afraid of getting caught, that's good not to do those things. But it doesn't mean much if it's not done for Jesus Christ. And so, like I said, it's not about modifying our behavior and just being under such good discipline that we just don't do things. But instead, while discipline is good and necessary, we want it to be coupled with an affection for Jesus. Because what is sin ultimately? Sin is an affection for ourselves. It's saying, I need this. I deserve this. I find my identity in this. And so we are in love with ourselves so much that we would betray the goodness of God for it. But instead, when our affection is for Jesus Christ, when we are in love with our Heavenly Father, when we're in love with the Holy Spirit within us, that those affections are going to influence our actions as well. And so rather than gritting our teeth and just being miserable all the time because we are constantly drawn to sin, but, oh, I'm not going to do it. Instead, sin becomes less appealing because it's not, it's not going to give us anything that we actually want. When we desire to understand every aspect of our life to the glory of God, to understand that everything is a good and perfect gift from God and that we want to enjoy it in that way. When we are so thankful to Jesus Christ, when we are desiring to be children of God, when we are in submission to the Holy Spirit's influence in our life, our love for God, our joy, our satisfaction in our God, when we find our identity in Jesus, then temptation takes on a totally different understanding in our lives. It will still come, but rather than that temptation being something that we are very likely to give into, instead, it's a warning sign. It shows us that there is some area in our life that is not surrendered to our Lord where we are not completely in love with him and fully devoted to him. 
And that's hard. And I'm not going to sit here and act like it's a perfect thing that's just really easy to do. You know, because I know, and I assume most Christians would agree with me, you go through waves where you are fully surrendered, sold out to Jesus. And temptation comes, the desire for sin is still there, but you just know that whatever it seems to offer, whatever promises it makes, it just can't compare to the joy that you have in God now. But over time, for one reason or another, sometimes that joy wanes a little bit. Things creep in slowly and quietly. We aren't living fully surrendered in small areas. And so those small compromises lead to further and further compromises. And then we find ourselves right back in the middle of that minefield, completely boondoggled on how we got there in the first place. So I'm not saying this is a foolproof thing where if you just boom, 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 knock it out, you're never going to be tempted again and everything's just going to be awesome in this life. But what I can say is that when we understand the reality of the gospel in our lives, as we're living for Jesus in this sin-cursed world, as people struggling between wanting to let sin be our master and letting Jesus be our master, the more we understand all of this conversation, not just in this episode, but in this series, when we understand the reality of sin and worldliness in our lives, we will better identify not just the major ways that we are not living for God, but even those smaller ways that lead to bigger ones. Final slide, final discussion. We've seen a lot. We have seen who Satan really is, and therefore, what power he really has in the world. We have seen a lot of ugliness about ourselves that maybe we didn't see before, and maybe we didn't like seeing. We talked about spiritual warfare last episode, and in this one, we've talked a lot more specifically about the reality of worldliness and our need for Jesus in the moment to moment. So as I kind of send us off on, like I said, this this official final video of this series. I just want to talk about a few practical steps to think on, to dwell on, maybe to write down and revisit as you're trying to really keep moving deeper into your faith with Jesus Christ, to having a more meaningful and more spiritual walk with him and better understand your temptations so that you can better live in victory over sin. So number one would be the reminder to live out God's purpose in a local church. Again, God does not call us to run around on the battlefield with our shield up, trying to block a hail of arrows coming at us from all sides. God calls us to community. We are meant to do this together. There's no cowboy Christians. You're not a lone wolf out there. I know it's hard. I know what it is to be hurt by other Christians. I know what it is to be socially awkward. I know what it is to prefer to stay home rather than go out, to be in isolation rather than to be social. I get it. But it's not about serving ourselves. It's not about justifying our own preferences. It's about living in the way that God has called us to live. And that is, maybe unfortunately, alongside other people who are just as imperfect and sin-loving as we are. Because that is how God has called us to live in this life 
And that's how we're going to live forever. You know, we're not going to be on our own little island in eternity. We're going to be around other believers, other followers of Jesus Christ. Why wait till then? Next, we want to value theology. And again, if you've been following my other series, theology isn't just this cut and dry study a bunch of facts. The whole point of theology in the life of a Christian is to say, who is God? Who am I? Now, how do I live in light of those realities? The more we understand about God, the more we understand about ourselves, the more we're going to be able to live for Jesus in this world. Next, we want to understand the true danger of worldliness. It's not Satan's individual attacks that we need to worry about. It's his global influence. It's all the the means that he has to push worldliness at us from all directions. You know, if you look at all the stuff we've talked about, there's almost no part of our lives that cannot be impacted by worldliness. And so we have to not just understand the danger of it, but know God enough to desire him over that worldliness that is bombarding us every day. We also want to realize the danger of our own hearts. You know, a lot of times we say, well, I feel like this is right. I feel like this is wrong. Here's the reality. Your heart is exactly what made you an enemy of God in the first place. Your heart told you all this sin would be great. Breaking God's law, living as his enemy would be awesome. And it wasn't. Our hearts are only going to lead us to wretchedness and depravity. Our hearts are desperately sick. We cannot trust our hearts. And so understand that your heart, that, that emotional feeling that you have, is often a response to worldliness. Your desires, your affections are often a response to all those things in your life that are shaping you and drawing you towards good or drawing you towards evil. So realize that you need to to care for your heart so carefully because everything that you expose yourself to influences what you desire and what you want to reject. And then finally, know what it means to truly live for Jesus and not just be a Christian who lives like the world. You know, I've hope, I, I really hope I've made it clear that I don't think you're going to lose your salvation by sinning. I don't think that there is any sin out there bad enough. I know there's no sin out there bad enough that God's just going to say, you know what? The, the, the death of my son, you know, the sacrifice of the second person of the Trinity, it can't cover that. It's just too much. No, Jesus's death as the perfect sacrifice lamb for our sin was enough to cover everything for all time. So, you know, rest in the reality that we can't out God's love. But at the same time, we don't want to just be good enough in this life. We don't want to just say, you know, I've, I've got my get out of hell free card. I'm good. I'm now going to go just live my life how I want. I'm going to pursue my own happiness. One, because if we can be truly satisfied with that, with no uh, discomfort in our souls, it's a good cause to question our salvation. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us and one of his main jobs is to grow us to be more like Jesus Christ, to convict us of sin, how can we live like the rest of the world comfortably if we have God in us? 
And so understanding that, find joy, find ultimate satisfaction in not just being good enough, just going through the motions, but also going to church. Truly live for Jesus. Walk in surrender to him. Surrender everything in your life to him. Your job, your family, your finances, your time. Give it all to your Savior and trust that you will not be disappointed because Jesus is worth everything. And that's it. We did it. We have been on a long journey. I know it's only been a few videos, but... Uh, you know, this was, you know, these were my first videos on YouTube. Um, and based on the feedback, I think a lot of people have really gained a better understanding, hopefully not just of who Satan is, but also how to live for Jesus now. And so I hope that this final video has been just a good capstone to really call you to examine every area of your life and really recognize the danger that worldliness poses all over the place. You know, one of Satan's names is the deceiver. You know, deception is his bread and butter. And worldliness is really the greatest expression of just how deceptive Satan truly is. Because at the end of the day, all worldliness really does is it deceives us into believing that this is going to offer us life when all it does is bring us death. Similarly, it deceives us into believing that the things of God are oppressive, they are worthless, they are unimportant, even though they're the most valuable things in all of our lives. So I hope that you have found great value in this series. I hope that you have had maybe some sorrow, but also some joy in better seeing just how incredible Jesus is, just how much we need him, just how incapable we are without him. So next time, uh, as I kind of cap off this series, like I said, this is the final of the core teaching, but I'm going to do a follow-up video to address some of the verses that people often ask me about because there are some things in the Bible that seem to imply that Satan does directly and personally attack us. And so next time uh, it'll be, you know, kind of a standalone video, but ultimately really just saying if all this stuff is true about Satan, then how can we understand the various ways that he's mentioned in scripture? And I think for a lot of people, just like my first video, the last video is going to really be a challenge to a lot of the traditions and assumptions that we've made. But hopefully at the end, as always, my goal isn't to just wow you, isn't to just make interesting content. I hope at the end of it that you will leave better challenged and more equipped to understand your God. So if you found value in this video, found value in this series, uh, three things that you could do. You could uh, like this video because that helps small channels get seen. You can subscribe to the channel because YouTube likes it when people hit the subscribe button uh, and they really like it when you hit some little bell icon that shoots you an email when I make a new video. 
Um, and you can also share it with your friends because they're probably not going to find me on their own. So if you find value in this content, make sure you let others know about it. Uh, I guess last of all, um, as always, I am so thankful for my supporters over on Patreon who uh, pledge monthly support that help this channel run, help me pay for some expenses associated with the ministry, and ultimately just help me be able to spend more time focused on the various content for this ministry. So if you'd like to join them for as little as just $1 a month, you can go to patreon.com slash onward in the faith. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.